0: Well, as we come uh, to the reading of God's word, uh, Wes encouraged me just to give a brief word before doing so about uh, myself and my wife and the work that we are uh, doing presently in church planting in North Tampa. And my wife is down here along with uh, her parents and my parents down from Pennsylvania. So it's a it's been a fun weekend having them here, and we're all so glad to be here worshiping with you. A brief word about. Uh, the work that I have been called to do, there has been a need, pressing need, for some time in the, in the university community area. It's an area that our Presbyterian has identified as a need of a church for some time now. It's been a wonderful work going on on the campus of the University of South Florida through the RUF ministry led by Jeff Lee has gathered quite a number of students there into a, a weekly fellowship. Uh, those students go out and worship at various PCA churches for the most part, but, but drive quite a distance to go to those churches. So there's been a, a desire to have a church to serve those students in the campus broadly. There's also a, a need, a particularly strong need, in the neighborhoods surrounding that area uh, for, the, for the preaching of the gospel. Those neighborhoods have been uh, called, nicknamed, Suitcase City. It's been that way since the 80s because of the transience of the neighborhoods and the poverty there, the cycles of poverty from generation to generation. And uh, we have felt a strong call to go there and be involved in those neighborhoods, to go to the people, to engage them, uh, to preach the gospel. So that has been what... Uh, I have been about for the last uh, six or eight months, I suppose uh, been spending time doing some um, lead work, initial work, meeting people. Uh, just it's, it's very easy people have there's a great openness to the gospel. there's a great openness to talk about spiritual things. and so uh, my my wife and I and others from from Holy Trinity. In Tampa, where I'm currently on staff, have been going and meeting people one on one, talking with them, um, just getting to know them, having a presence. We had a had a cookout a few weeks ago for the first time. Probably 200 folks from the neighborhoods came, and a number of folks from our church were able to simply be present and have a have our have our the face of our church be seen. We've recently started a first Bible study. Um, actually, we've met twice and had just a handful of folks from the community come, but looking to build on that. So that's the nature of what we're doing there. We'd love to open uh, the church for worship sometime in 2013, uh, maybe early, but could be also later, uh, just as the Lord gives growth and, and begins to raise up disciples of Christ. So that is that is the work that we're we're doing and I believe you'll see from this passage I, I chose this passage because this scripture, along with a few other scriptures, was important in developing a sense of call to this aspect of of ministry and I believe you'll see why as we get into this passage so let me read it and then I will ask God's blessing on his word. let's read Luke chapter fourteen. Verses 12 through
1: 24.
0: Luke 14, starting with verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, None of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray. Our God, we pray you give us understanding to grasp your holy word. And we pray, God, that ultimately, even even as fruit of this message being heard, God, that, that many would be brought into your feast into your banquet. pray in Christ's name. Amen. Love has never been so costly as the love that our King has displayed to us. Eight chapters from this passage in Luke, Luke chapter 22. The Lord Jesus Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's, the moment where the powers of darkness are gathered. It is their hour. And Christ, the Son of God, is praying, we read in that text, earnestly for the Father. He's praying in agony before God. He is is alone with His disciples a distance from Him, facing what He alone will shortly face. We Read there in Luke 22, His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Mark records Jesus saying, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. Those words are to be taken very seriously and gravely as we have a view of our King that we've never had before. In His humanness, He is perhaps beholding more clearly than ever what He is about to face. What it means for Him to stand as mediator between a world in rebellion and heaven in opposition. As one pastor, Derek Thomas, put, put it, we must not put the brakes on these words. The hour of reckoning has come. When Moses saw God on Mount Sinai, he trembled in fear, yet there was grace there. But Jesus must face the unmitigated wrath of God. There's a consuming fire here that will consume Him to the full. What we see is that breaking on the mind and the heart of the Son of God is the tremendous costliness of what He is to accomplish. The tremendous price that love is calling forth from Him to pay. What will be extracted from Him at unimaginable cost to His person. In submission to His Father and love for those for whom He dies. That's the cost of redemption. That's the cost of our lives as we and consider that this morning. The cost of the cross. It's costliness of love that has never been seen or will ever be, be seen again. And that is what we need to remember as we come to our text. The cost that our King has paid. The ransom He has paid for us. We keep that in view as we hear these words of Luke 14 and we hear the commandment of our King. And we hear... The crown that he holds out in this passage. And we hear the character of his kingdom. These three things that I want to consider from this text. Spoken from our suffering Savior who paid such a cost. So look with me at this text. We we first see in, in these verses a, a bold commandment from him. He is eating a meal at the Sabbath on the Sabbath at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, a man of status, a respected and influential man. It seems this meal is probably held after the synagogue service so it's it's after church, and this respected church member has invited people over to his house along with the visiting rabbi, the visiting teacher, Jesus and we look at. Verse 12, it says, He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. And notice how direct and bold Jesus is with this man of a status who's invited him into his house. He's uncomfortably forward with him if you think about these words. He's essentially saying, You've invited the wrong people to this little gathering. Okay? And this is in the middle of, of dinner that he, he, he breaks out and says this. And we get the sense he's not going to be staying for coffee Here, This is not a pleasant comment that he's making. He's ruined the meal. You can imagine the awkward silence that might hang in the air after Jesus says this. But look at the, look at the nature of what he says. It's, it's even surprising to us How forcefully he states it. Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. And before we explain that away, we need to feel the the force, the absolute nature of of that statement. He uses absolute terms. Do not invite those from whom you may receive repayment. He's saying, be it money, be it comfort, be it social standing any benefit, even from within your family. He is, he is striking here deep at something. But what I think we see he's getting at is, is the, the, the engine that drives the social structures of our world. The engine that drives the networks of communities, be it churches or families or, or cities or nations. It's, it's a combustion engine injected by the fuel of Self-service, self-promotion, what is in it for me? It's subtle, it's so subtle, but it's an everywhere present mindset that says, if I'm going to give something or do something for someone, what am I going to get in return? How will this improve me, give me a notch up on the scale, give me the next step up on the ladder? A first priority is the financial or social or emotional well-being of number one. That's so subtle, isn't it? These are religious people with very clean noses at this, at this setting. But if we read the context in the preceding verses, we realize that they've come because they know they're going to be rubbing shoulders with the right people. The right sorts of people. And they want the seat of honor. And no one's calling them out on this. Because it's so easy to operate in this manner. And no one to even notice it because it's the way of the world. And yet it's a subtle evil. And it's instituted by the prince of the power of this world, by the evil one himself. It is his ways. And Christ, the King, the Son of God who has come in the flesh and sat down at the meal of those who are to lead his people, at the meal of the very religious leaders today, is leveling his assessment of where they stand. And it is not favorable. Now, from Christ's own example, we know that He is not ultimately speaking in absolute terms. We know that the context is driving His, his forcefulness. There are times when it is right and good and godly to have meals with your family and your friends and your relatives and, and your rich neighbors. Jesus himself just had the Passover with his closest disciples. But, obedience to Christ's command here that we will look at is putting away this old engine of self-service. The old engine of self-promotion. It's denying the way of the world. It's taking up This command in verse 13, what he says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. A new underlying current driving our lives, carrying us forward, defining our social structures, defining even our family interactions. Christ is calling us to. There are countless equivalents of the people that he mentions here. The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Some, literally, to this day, are the same. The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. But we can think of many others: the the handicapped mentally, perhaps, the homeless, immigrants, people in nursing homes, disabled, uh, the widow who has been left alone, um, high schoolers, for any in this room, or young folks, the the social outcast in your group. What will it cost you to have? Lunch with that person. There are many. These categories are just as real for us. And the call that the king is issuing forth here is the call of costly love. It's the call to lay down our lives. I believe it's a very literal meaning here. The, the table, the feast. Invite them in to your literal table. Welcome them into your social space. Circles, welcome them into your fellowship, welcome them into the everyday rhythms of your life, even. As James puts it, A true religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Just think of how far that visit can go. Go and sit down and have that meal. Now all of us feel the natural objection. It's exactly what Jesus is getting to here. Oh about the cost of this sort of activity. How about the cost in my life? This will drain my time. Perhaps I won't really ultimately help them. Perhaps I have better things to do or pressing demands on my schedule. Perhaps perhaps this person doesn't have good hygiene if I'm engaging. We are very aware that there is a cost and Jesus is saying, that's exactly right. There is a cost. It's cost and they cannot repay you. And you will bear that cost and it will affect your life. Your life will be changed. And it might be negative. But that would be a dinner party that would be very pleasing to me. Our King bids us to walk a road of conformity to himself it's the expression of who we are by the new creation of God's spirit in us it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and Christ in this world is a Christ who moves us on the road of suffering is a Christ who calls us to take up the cross to to deny ourselves daily and to follow him that's the way of the Christian. That is what it means to know Him and to follow Him. We do not seek self. We give of self. It's a costly commandment to obey. It's the cost of love. But we don't stop with the commandment because there's a crown held out by our King here. Look at verse 14. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There is a resurrection. Jesus has been raised from the tomb. And He is on high. And the last day will come. The trump will sound and His voice will go forth and call the dead out of the tombs. And we will rise. And those who are in Christ will rise to glory and life And all that is done in Christ's name will be remembered at that time. He has not forgotten one thing that has been done in His name. Not one precious hour given in His service. Not one meal offered in kindness. Not one dollar given in service. Christ remembers it all. Not one groan. Not one tear goes forgotten by the King. I take these words at face value. He will repay. You will be repaid. And our gaze must be fixed to that coming day when Christ will issue that word and the resurrection will come. And that repayment will come. There's an irony in Scripture. Those who hold on to their lives will lose it. Those who lay down their lives will keep them. Think about this. Do we love our lives? Do we love our car? Do we love our house? Do we love our time? Scripture teaches us that if we would keep these things, if these things would ultimately have meaning beyond the end of this world and the end of our lives and into the world to come, then we must lay them down. We must make that house a place of hospitality. We must make that car a vehicle of service, taking us to the needy. We must make our time, redeemed time spent according to our King's desires. And then, it will be ours forever. And it will echo through eternity. And Christ will repay every way that that was used and spent in His kingdom and to His glory. And ultimately it will be to our delight and our joy. And it will be to us a crown like those elders in the book of Revelation who take that crown and cast it before Christ. supreme delight, giving praise to Him for what He has done through us. There is reward, there is joy in that world to come. And what we do now has impact upon it. We watch the NASDAQ and the stock market closely, and if only, if only our hearts would be so tuned to the returns of glory in heaven in the world to come. It is a sure thing. Costly love will be repaid. The king holds out a crown here. Well, this man cries out in verse 15, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I'm guessing he did that because of the awkward silence. And he offers this statement that's sort of, it's true. Blessed will be everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. It's true, but it's also an easy, neutral statement in this crowd where everyone thinks that they are going to the kingdom of God. But Christ lays out for us that is not the case and and all that has just been said the cost this commandment the crown he brings it together in connecting it to the character of his kingdom this topic that this man has raised yes his kingdom what about the kingdom what is the kingdom like and here we find the undergirding theology of why it is that we are called to move in this way the theology of Christ's kingdom and particularly we see in this passage the concern is who is there and who is not there in this kingdom. So he takes up this metaphor of a banquet, the kingdom banquet, in verse 16. A man once gave a great banquet Envision a, a rich table with delicious foods that have been spread. Finest foods. A wealthy man has prepared this. You can imagine the wine and the cheeses and the meats. And the, the wonderful aroma. This has been prepared a long time in preparation. Feasts are not easy in this. Time. Lambs have been slaughtered, grain has been ground, bread has been baked. And the feast is ready. Well, the the parable goes on to explain that an invitation has gone out. It's like an Evite invitation. An, event, uh, an invitation went out months ago, said, come. And everyone said, okay, we're coming. And now it's right before, and that reminder comes out. The servants go out, okay, it's ready, come to the feast. And a number of people say they're coming, but when everything is ready, the servant finds no one is coming. Verse 18, a field needs to be seen. Verse 19, oxen need to be examined. Verse 20, a marriage has happened. Now, if you've ever had an event and invited people who turned you down, sometimes you wonder, what's the real reason that they're not coming? And that's exactly the case here. We, we know the host of the banquet knows why they're not coming. The land has already been bought. Can't it wait a day? Her cattle, likewise, have been purchased. Why is it so pressing to examine them? This new marriage would bring her along. <laughs> There's a simple fact here being revealed that these so-called friends have far more interest in their daily activities than in the master. They're not so concerned with him. He's not truly their friend. And so they don't come. The master is understandably angered. And Jesus ends the parable in a very fearsome way in verse 24 by saying I tell you none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet Christ had just lamented over Jerusalem in the previous chapter and the warning of this parable is very stark and clear these men these very ones with whom he sits the religious leaders of the time have no part in that banquet they will miss it and not because of necessarily gross outstanding immorality but because they love their life rather than the giver of life. They love this world, making their way in this world. Often when we try to find our place in this world, isn't it true that the world finds its place in us? And that is what has happened, and what has taken over these men. It's a cow and a wife and a field that keep them out of the kingdom. They miss the banquet because they love this life rather than the giver of life here and now, more than eternity with Christ. This is a severe warning. They had said yes to God's first invitation, but no, when it really came time to part with the things of this world. And when the God of the Scriptures, the God of whom they professed to believe, literally came and sat down with them at their table, it was clear that He was not the God that they worshipped. The God they worshipped was in the stall, was the land, the field, the wife, whatever it be. So there was, there was a great warning. The kingdom is not populated with those who are infatuated with this world. But who is it populated with? Who will be at the table? In the the parable, the master is angry at this rejection, but he doesn't sulk. He takes action, swift action. He sends his servant out. Now notice to whom the, the servant is sent. It's two groups here. The first is described in verse 21. Look there. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the servant of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Exactly the ones discussed earlier. Those who cannot repay. Those who have nothing to offer. Those who are total recipients. No resources. No strength. Needy. The second group is in verse
1: 23.
0: Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. On the highways and in the hedges would be the vagrants, the homeless, the travelers, the foreigners, the Gentiles, those seemingly furthest from the covenant people of God. The invitation is being extended outside the kingdom of Israel. The Master says in verse 23, compel them to come in. Compel them. I think these people need to be compelled for a very different reason than the original recipients needed to be compelled. They need to be compelled because it is so surprising that they would be invited. Why would he want me as a guest, they're going to say. Is this some sort of joke? Where are the hidden cameras? Why me? Look at how I am dressed. Look how I stand here. And the servant is to say, no, come, this feast is for you. This feast the doors are open. The feasts have already started. Come in. The 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 invitation is wide open. Smell smell the the scent coming from the table. Come to the feast. It's for you. I believe the response of the poor man, the response of the Gentile, the response of that that traveler would be, I'm not worthy, I'm not dressed for this feast. How can I come in to this table. And the Father's response, we know from the Scriptures, is none is worthy. Who can repay the cost of this feast? Who can comprehend what has been given to set this table and to open the doors of this great eternal feast? The cost is the very blood of the Son of God that has been shed... That cost has been paid. You cannot repay it. You cannot come worthy. You cannot come in garments clean enough for this house. Come on free grace. And those who grasp that message and know that they are such people will come with joy. And they will come saying with David, your steadfast love is better than my life. It is better than my life. The feast of heaven is better than everything below. Christ sends out His servants to compel them in. He sends them out with His Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, His effectual calling, convincing and converting sinners to see their unworthiness and their neediness. And bringing them in, compelling them to come into the feast. And they will come, and they are coming from north, south, east, and west to dine at the table. The cost has been great to open the kingdom to all. If to this day you have not known this call truly, if you have loved your life more than the giver of life, The call is wide open to you. Forsake your life. Take up your cross. Come to the banquet of the King. Come and feast. And Christians, you who are eagerly waiting for Him, don't forget that we are the poor. We are the the needy. We are the ones who have nothing to offer our King. Besides what He gives to us. You have been summoned to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You are His guest. You are His servant. You are now sending forth His invitation as one who has already begun to feast at that table. Jesus will fill His table. He is sending us forth. And we need to ask the question, who is at our table? Let's let our tables look like his table, a table to come. Let's pray. Our God, we praise praise you for Christ and the great cost He paid for our lives. Bless your name. Give you thanks. Lord, would you strengthen us to look to that table to come to look to the kingdom and to look to the great love that our King has spent on us. We thank you for this. And pray in Christ's name. Amen.